isn't it? Let's take a minute and just rejoice for our brothers and sisters in California who've been given injunctive relief by, this, by the Supreme Court. Uh, they're able, they are able to gather. They can't sing yet. They have to prove that that's a necessary part of their worship and that they're not going to hurt people by doing it. Uh, but there's an opening for that, so they have some time to figure that out. We're, we're grateful for what God is doing. We're grateful for the opportunity to meet together. It's so important that we do that. Amen? How many of you saw the Facebook update that I did about the 9-11 services? Maybe you were just registered for, okay. So in that, I quoted uh, from the book of Acts where it talked about how the people continued after the day of Pentecost and after God added 3,000 to their number, how they continued to go to the temple and to worship together and to meet in homes and to break bread and uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together and how they, they fellowshiped and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and how the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I believe that as we gather together in our homes, as we gather together here, as we worship the Lord, as we devote ourselves to the the teaching of the word and to prayer, and really to fellowship, to being together in God's presence, that there will be an additional number of people that are added. What would it look like? Just take a minute and just dream with me for a second to, to imagine what it would look like for God to daily add to the number of those who are being saved in your life. I mean, you know, Think of, the, think of the, the loved ones that you have or the friends or the neighbors or the coworkers and just say, God, what would it look like for you to do that? By, by your power, just because we're doing what you've asked us to do, you're pouring out in power. I think it's a pretty compelling vision. I think it's worth praying, praying for. I think it's worth, worth seeking the Lord for. Um, I, I just want to really quick kind of highlight that small groups started this week. Um, and if you are not part of a small group, uh, you're missing out. Uh, there are small groups listed on the website. I know there's openings in several of those. Um, if you have been part of a small group and you want to be trained to be a small group leader, we have training for that as well. And we want to see the kingdom of God come. We as a church are committed to God's presence, which we do together. And when we're apart in our homes or when we're by ourselves, we're committed to being with the Lord because he's committed to being with us. And we're also committed to making disciples. And we know that we make disciples in small groups and one-on-one. This is great. Like, how many of you enjoy being at church, right? You're here. You came through the snow. You made it. Uh, this is good. But, but there's something about, there's something about, make, about this that doesn't allow us to make disciples. God is going to equip you to do that, and we want to see that happen. We're excited about what God's going to do in the near future with the church in that as well. So when I was little, uh, you know how, like, when you're real little, you get told jokes that you just kind of repeat, and you have no idea what you're saying? Right, like, you know, my first joke was, how do you make a handkerchief dance? Put a little boogie in it, right? Why do cows have bells? Because their horns don't work. I mean, just, like, stuff like that, that, that I would just repeat, and I had, like, I don't think I had a very good sense of humor. My high school friends would tell you that I had a horrible sense of humor. Uh, they, had this, um, they had this running joke, like, I would crack a joke, or they would crack a joke, and then the, you know how like you try to get in on it, and you keep it going, and everybody's doing it, and then but I would be the guy that like threw something in that I thought was pretty funny, and they they just all stop and stare at me because they were jerks, and then they started saying they started saying like they'd be like pull, they'd be like Hamlin, you killed it, and I'm like thanks guys, thanks a lot, and then they just started saying pull like anytime I open my mouth they're like pull, I'm like you guys are jerks, you guys I mean yeah, anyways we won't go there. 
But if you're, if guys, if by any chance, well, they're not watching because we're not recording. We're going to record the next one. When I get there, I'll have to say sorry to him before. But maybe I'm not sorry. Anyways, they didn't, I did not have a very good sense of humor, according to these friends. And um, I remember sitting in college uh, in, like, at the um, dining hall with a bunch of my uh, honors floor friends. We had an honors floor in, in college. And, uh, and they were brilli- they, these were brilliant kids. And I don't know how I got to be part of their friend group. Um, but we always sat, like, when we had dinner together, kind of in this little alcove area. Remember, I remember very distinctly sitting at that table, and one of my friends cracked the funniest joke about Nikita Khrushchev and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I was like, that's hilarious. And the whole table erupted. And I realized in that moment that maybe my sense of humor was developed in a different way than my idiot high school friends. Again, I'll have to apologize when we're on when we're on video. But you know what I mean? Like, there's a difference between a fart joke and, like, an intelligent joke, right? And these were intelligent jokes. But, but here's the thing. I think the reason why I didn't always get it is because sometimes the jokes that I told, I, I wasn't even in on them. Like, I would tell the joke, but I wasn't in on it. Do you remember the joke? I remember it very distinctly that went around. I was told it, and I just started to repeat it. It's, did you know they took the word gullible out of the dictionary? I was told that joke when I was a little kid, and I didn't get it as a joke. I just shared it as fact. <laughs> so, like, I'm running around, and it wasn't until years later that I realized that this was a joke, and the joke was on me, because I love facts, and I love sharing them, and I'm running around telling everybody they took the, the word gullible out of the dictionary. You know, like, they really did. Like, sometimes we just don't get it, right? And I don't know, I think maybe, like, the earnestness of my heart made jokes not land with me all the time, or I didn't know. There were situations where people were joking and I couldn't tell they were joking with me. Like I remember being at a retreat once and uh, a a man who uh, was speaking at the retreat, who we've actually had in, Sam Farina, uh, to do discipleship training. God connected us like 25 years later, 30 years later, um, in terms of of coaching and disciple making and things like that. He was speaking at the retreat and he was talking to one of my friends. We're in high school, it's after, after the service and he's talking to one of my friends and I walk up and I talk to him. And he tells me that he, like, oh yeah, me and Paul go way back. And I, I, it took me years to figure out, he didn't know Paul until two minutes before I walked up into the conversation. He was just joking with me. So I'm telling you, I don't, I don't always understand the joke, right? I don't always get it. But here, the thing is, is like, it could be because, like I said, of, of maybe like my earnestness, or maybe because I really don't know what gullible is, or a lack of, of understanding. But here, here's the thing. Our frameworks for life, like how we approach life, really do affect how we interpret the stuff that goes on with us. And um, sometimes we have blind spots in our lives, uh, and they they keep us from like processing communication in the same way. Like, if you're married here, you know what this is like. Husbands and wives, you have different frameworks on family, right? When you got married, was it perfect? Perfect. Like, did you, did you both say, hey, we came from the exact same, if you came from the exact same background, that's a little weird, right? You, prob- you should have different parents. So you, you come into that, you have different frameworks, you have different families, you have different wants or desires. You go into the same conversation, and you might have similar desires, but you have, you have differences of opinion and what you want out of that. And so your framework kind of determines how you communicate with one another. So if, if, if your husband says something, like in my house, I'm, I, I, maybe I don't love enough, but sometimes I'm easily offended. Like someone will say something, I'll be like, whoa, whoa, hey, take it easy. Like yesterday, Dave Benyak and, and Teen Challenge did an incredible fundraiser where they made brick oven pizzas. 
And so we got these pizzas, we brought them home, and my son was low-key uh, manipulating me. He's sitting on the, on the chair with his pizza box, eating his whole personal pizza, which was delicious, and he's uh, like munching, he's got sauce all over, he's like, I can't, I, I don't know, Dad, this is really hard. I'm like, what's hard, man? Like, you're sitting in an easy chair eating a pizza. He goes, no, it's really hard. I can't tell, I can't tell if this pizza is better or your pizza is better, because I have a brick oven, it's the same brick oven that I make pizzas in, and I'm like, that's not a hard decision. He's like, no, I'm, oh, I just, it's really hard, I can't tell. I mean, he's like trying to get me to fire up the oven to make him another pizza. <laughs> I'm like, this decision should be very, these pizzas are great, but this decision should be very easy for you. It's my pizza. <laughs> we, he, he, has, he has a different framework to the conversation, right? Like he thinks if I get my dad to make pizza, and I, I'm like, you should just love me and say my pizza's best, even if it's not. We do this in our lives with, with children and parents. Like you come into the conversation and children are, are selfish, right, generally, and they don't see the big picture. And, and parents are like trying to move kids along in the big picture. And generally, we, we want what's best for them. And those things tend to clash. And so the frameworks make, make it hard to catch. You know, like you're, t- you're giving your kids instructions over and over again. And you think you're really clear with it, but they don't come into the conversation trying to think big picture. They're just like, how am I going to get another pizza? Right? Or, or maybe it's like in our country, Democrats and Republicans. Right? Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to go there, but here's the thing. Like, there's this call for unity in our country, but unity over what? Like, if you have different philosophical ideas about the way the world works and the way government should operate, it's very hard to come together in unity. Right? You, you talk, one person says unity, the other person says unity, and you're not talking about the same thing. Right? You have different frameworks. And so sometimes our frameworks help us to miss the stuff that's going on around us. And, and really, our frameworks and our mindsets and our philosophy will always determine the interpretation of what Jesus is saying to us spiritually. When we read the word, when we're together, when we hear the word being preached, it, it, will, it will determine how we process it. And here's the thing. Jesus is so good, he's committed to pushing through those frameworks when they're not in a great spot. Aren't you glad that Jesus is willing to do that? He doesn't say, you're an idiot and walk away. Or you, like, he, you know, he doesn't come to us and speak to us and we, we miss what he's saying. He goes, pull. Right? Jesus is committed to us having those frameworks pushed upon. And it's not like he comes and blows them up, although sometimes he does it. But he actually literally like, wants to walk us through a better understanding so that when he speaks, his word lands in our heart in a place where it's actionable and where it's full of life and where it, it literally becomes like sweet, sweet bread that we eat, and it, it's nourishing to our souls, and it, it, it affects the world around us. But that doesn't always happen. I, I know that because I'll preach a message, and I think I'm super clear on what it is, and I'll get like three different versions from people. Hey, that message was great. I loved how you said this, and I'm like, I didn't say that at all. So I know, I know that it happens, right? How, how we see this, even for Jesus, but he's so faithful. And so we're going to look at this uh, invitation that he gives us, and we're going to see how maybe somebody came to him without a framework that was similar to Jesus, because he wants us to experience the fullness of his kingdom. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to, Lord willing, finish the series of divine invitation this morning. We've seen that the divine invitation to his, his disciples, the original invitation, when he's calling his disciples in, in John, he's saying to them, listen, I want you to come and see first. And we know that seeing him clearly is really important. He doesn't call us to like jump in all the way before he asks us to come and see. 
And he's committed to helping us see clearly. Then he calls his disciples, and what does he say? He says, come follow me. Right? It's not just about seeing. It's not just about like having it up here and saying, okay, God, like, I'm willing to see you clearly. But it's actually about responding with our lives and following him. And today we're going to see the, the divine invitation to power. Let's look at verse uh, 45. Here's what it says. Philip, who has already been called to come follow Jesus, went to look for Nathanael and told him, we found the very person that Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. And as they approached Jesus, Jesus said, by the way, you already caught a framework, right? There's actually a couple frameworks here. There's Philip's framework, Nathaniel's framework, and Jesus' framework that we're going to see. And as they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth, you will see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. God, give us your framework as we look at your word today. We, we trust you to be faithful, to change the way that we look at things so we can receive the fullness of your kingdom and the power that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this encounter, Philip comes uh, to Nathanael and says, we have found the one, the one scriptures point to. In other words, he's saying, listen, we have a bunch of prophetic scripture that we understand. Talk about the Messiah, and I'm telling you, this guy is the one. We found him. His name is Jesus. He's the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Now, Nathaniel, some, some interpreters say that, that under the fig tree thing was him sitting and praying and waiting on the Lord and saying, show me Messiah. I don't know if that's actually the case, but Jesus said, I saw you sitting under the tree. But, but Philip comes and says, we found him. Everything that's, that, that, that has been written about this coming Messiah, he fulfills it all. But then he says something that catches Nathaniel off guard. Well, not off guard, actually on guard. And he says, he's Jesus son of Joseph from Nazareth. And sometimes we think that, that Nathaniel's being a little punky or a little bit rude, like, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's like, can anything, you know, can the Buffalo Bills ever win, <laughs> right? Like, if around the league, around the country, we kind of have this reputation, you know, for being snowy and being a, a, an old steel town and having a team that goes to the Super Bowl four times in a row like no other team has ever done. That was, like, to build us up. But then we lost four, right? And so like we have this reputation. And Nathaniel's, Nathaniel's not talking about Nazareth having a bad reputation. Nathaniel literally, who understands the scripture, saying there is no scripture that talks about Nazareth being the place, the birthplace of Messiah. He's not necessarily being punky in, this term, in the sense that we would, we would read that. He's literally saying... If I understand the scripture correctly, if I understand all that you've talked about, about the Messiah, he, Nazareth is not mentioned in it. There's other places that are mentioned. We should be looking somewhere else. And so he, he's trying to figure out, does this really match up? 
And what does Philip do? Philip says the same thing that Jesus said to the disciples. The, circ- the cycle of discipleship is already repeating. He says, just come and see for yourself. Now, this is a great invitation because oftentimes we feel like we've got to close the deal when it comes to disciple making or calling people to Jesus or, or seeing people encounter God and, and be saved. But the truth is this. Jesus is good enough that if we can just get them in front of Jesus, if we can help them to see who Jesus is, they, they will see for themselves and it will change their lives. And so sometimes we need to take the pressure off to get the deal done. We just got to get Jesus in front of people or people in front of Jesus, right? Come and see. We do that all kinds of ways. We invite them to church. We invite them to small group. We, uh, but we can also do that by going to people as well. And so he invites Nathaniel to come and see for yourself. And as they approach, Jesus has this assessment of Nathaniel. This is how I know Nathaniel's heart was probably in the right place, right? Because Jesus, how many of you know when Jesus gives an assessment, right? Pretty good. How many of you ever had a performance review at work? How many of you have to like sign it when you're done? Like, yes, I agree with it, right? Have you ever refused to sign it because you're like, the boss does not get it? Like, I want a couple things in here before I sign it that I think, you know. How many of you know when Jesus gives you a performance review, probably pretty accurate right if he says hey would you sign it just go just go ahead and sign it king of the universe got it figured out and he said so i know that that nathaniel's heart was in the right place because jesus says what here's a genuine son of israel someone with complete integrity he doesn't mess around he really does want to know who god is He's one that, 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 that walks with, like, the people, of, the people of Israel were called to walk with God. And he says, this, this, this man is doing that. He's, he's fulfilling that call as a son of Israel. <clears throat> and Nathaniel says, because he's complete integrity, he's like, how do you know me? Like, have you ever been around religious people that kind of schmooze a little too much, like pastors? You're like, come on. Like, you can't be that nice. Look, we're from Buffalo. We don't trust anybody, right? <laughs> the truth is, sometimes they, people really are that genuinely nice. Sometimes they're trying to tell us who, who God sees us as, and we just don't, we don't believe it because you're like, you can't possibly know me, so how do you, like, we're just standoffish with people. But Jesus, again, with the asse- assessment is real, really does know Nathaniel. And to prove it, he says, I saw you under the fig tree. And what is Nathaniel's response? He goes from skeptical, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, how do you know me to, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Right? He, liter- he literally says, all, all it took was like a three-second conversation. You're the king of Israel. <laughs> he like installs him in his heart and in his life in the place that he deserves to be. And Jesus asks a great question. Did you believe just because? Now, we could think again that Jesus is criticizing Nathaniel. Did you believe just because? I think there's something powerful. Remember, Jesus gave him a great review of his heart. There was great faith in Nathaniel that in the moment that he was able to see, he was all in, right? He didn't kind of say, well, let's try this out for a few weeks. Let's see if your pro- 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 prophecies are really accurate. Um, I'm not sure that I really want to follow you. Let's see what the accommodations are like as we, as we kind of walk this out. 
He has this encounter with Jesus. Three seconds later, by faith, he is all in. And Jesus says this. He says, I tell you the truth. And this is where he gives an open promise, an invitation to power. You will all see, you will all see, you will all see, not just Nathaniel, you will all see, heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is a stairway between heaven and earth. Similar language to Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer where he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because of Jesus, we are able to see God's will on earth as it is in heaven. We're able to pray for that. We're able to, to, to lean towards that. We're able to have faith for, for that. And, G, and it's a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Jesus promises it. He te- te- teaches us to pray for it. And then he fulfills it as well. How many of you would like to see the fulfillment of that? Now, we saw that literally in Jesus' ministry, but he transitioned it to his people in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts chapter 1, Verses four through eight, this is after Jesus died, this is after he's resurrected, he's meeting with his disciples on a semi-regular basis, and it just says, once while he was eating with them. I think that's pretty cool, that Jesus was eating with his disciples. He commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has a time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He refocused them on power. He gave them an invitation to the power of God through the Holy Spirit in him. And if you read in, uh, in the book of Acts, you'll read about what happens on the day of Pentecost. It's worth going through. It's worth reading and seeing. I don't want to focus on that this morning. But what happens is uh, the believers take him at his word. They wait. The Holy Spirit is poured out and fills the people to overflowing. There's a sound of mighty rushing wind. There's tongues and flames of fire above their heads. And they all start speaking languages they've never heard as the Lord gives them the words to speak. Now that's great, but what did Jesus say? We'll get into the power in a minute. He said, you'll be my witnesses. And so in this moment, all these people are like, hey, these people are drunk because it was early in the morning. And Peter, the one who has made bold statements for God before and then kind of failed on those statements, the one who said, I'll never betray you and then denies him. And the one who, the one who you know, says, hey, call me out to walk on water and then falls because he takes his eyes off Jesus. By the way, he was the only, he walked back into the boat holding Jesus' hand like, and he was the only disciple to walk on water, so let's give him a little bit of a break, right? But this one who was intimidated, who had been you know, intimidated by a little girl, was restored by Jesus along the lake over breakfast of fish, by the way. And he stands up in front of all the 12, and he gives this sermon, and 3,000 people come to faith and are baptized that day. How many of you know that's a pretty good day for a preacher? The power of God moves on his people, specifically on Peter, but on the rest of the disciples. And you can read in the book of Acts where this happens over and over and over again. It's an invitation to the fulfillment of that open heaven, not just upon Jesus, but on his people. And so what we read here is, is about power being poured out. And I want to look at that real quick and just talk about it for just a couple minutes. First is this, the first point about power is that the power is not always what we think it looks like. 
Like if, we're, if we receive an invitation to power, most of the time it's not going to look like we expect, right? And so the, the disciples had an expectation. They're like, hey, uh, we're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Is now the time for you to restore the kingdom? To free Israel, they say? It's their framework that causes them to receive Jesus' invitation to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to what the result is of that. Are you going to free Israel? Are you going to restore the kingdom to us? Like, the first was, are you going to free Israel? Now, that's not a bad question. Because there is, there is a, a restoration of na- national Israel that I believe is part of what God is doing to fulfill his promises in the earth. And it, we've seen it in, in, well, not our lifetime, most of us before we were born, some of us before we were born. It's not a bad question. It's actually not a bad framework that God wants to do something with natural, national Israel. You can't divorce the people of God and the land of God from the purposes of God. So it's not a bad question. And they also say, is it time for you to restore the kingdom to us? Again, not a bad question. They're talking about a kingdom. They realize he's the king and he's the Lord. Are you going to restore it to us is kind of the issue, though. What did they expect? They expected a national restoration of the nation of Israel, freedom from the oppressors of of Rome, and power for them. You're the king and you're going to hand it to us. Again, not a bad thing. Like, God gives us power. He promised power. But what does it look like? Not as they expect. It's waiting in a room. It's flames of fire appearing above their heads and rushing wind and speaking in languages that they never learned. It's, it's people looking at them like they're drunk. How many of you would think, hey, that's a great way to start a movement? How many of you think that's a really bad way to start a religious movement? Right? That doesn't make sense. People are going to say that's a cult. People are going to persecute them and throw them out. The religious leaders did that. That's what it looked like. The power of God is not always what we think it will look like, but it does include signs and wonders and miracles in the presence of Jesus. Remember, I had a friend uh, in ministry when I first started who had a real problem with Jesus is my boyfriend songs. And God did a a miraculous work in his heart where he realized that that intimacy is what God wanted from him all along. And he was from a denominational background that did not talk about the power and the presence of God like we talk about it. And I remember one day he was like, he's like, Josh, I just, I read something and it blew my mind. Jesus asked as proof, like, what is the proof of Jesus' presence? Like, what does it look like when he's around? He says, the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. And, And he's like, we should probably expect that every time we're together. And I'm like, what is going on with my friend? I mean, he loved Jesus incredibly, but all of a sudden his eyes are opened up to the miraculous. And whenever Jesus is in the room, the miraculous is possible and the miraculous happens. That's what power looks like. Second is this, power comes through humility. It's not humility of thinking lowly of ourselves, it's humility of knowing that we have a need. Jesus said, don't, don't leave till you get this. Knowing the need that we need to see, we need to follow him, and we need the power of God. Andrew Murray said this, humility is the chief virtue. In other words, we understand the rest of what God does through us through understanding our position before him, to understanding who he is and who we are. And again, it's not thinking just lowly of ourselves, it's, it's recognizing we, in Christ we have been seated in high places, right? 
In Christ, we have been given righteousness. In Christ, all this has been done for us. But humility recognizes that that's not in and of ourselves. It's not God restoring the kingdom to us. It's God's kingdom. It's Jesus' kingdom. Humility is not, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. It's I'm a sinner who is saved by grace, who is filled with the Holy Spirit and anointed to do what God has called me to do in this earth because of who he is. It's a recognition that the, the, the stairway to heaven, the, the, the angels descending up and down, is not us being special, it's Jesus Christ restoring that connection between heaven and earth. And in Jesus, that's possible. Power comes through recognizing our need. The disciples, the apostles, were willing to go and wait because they recognized their need. They were willing to, to not move until they received. Third, power comes through obedience. Jesus said, don't leave until the promise is fulfilled. You know, a lot of times we throw around the, the term the Lord Jesus, and we just think it's like another way to say God. But there's something really powerful and necessary in our understanding of Jesus' lordship in our lives, of his authority in our lives. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ unless he's your Lord. And you don't have to have it all figured out, right? The disciples did not have it all figured out when they started following Jesus. I'm sure Nathaniel didn't have it all figured out when he's like, you're the king of Israel. But God in his goodness, again, is willing to bring us along in that. But we've got to decide on a regular basis that he is going to be our Lord, that he has direct direction control over our lives. And not just like when we're here or when we're doing small group or when we're spiritual, but like every moment of every day. So reading a book, I'm reading a book by Tony Evans right now, and he says, he encourages the people who are reading it, every day wake up and say, God, how do you want to be more Lord of my life today? What's an area that you, that you want to be directive in my life? And the truth is this, if we're unwilling to surrender parts of our lives to him, we can't be his disciples. We've got to be like Nathaniel and be all the way in. Power also comes through waiting. We live in a microwave culture, don't we? Like, we, we just added longer services. You've already sat here seven minutes over the time that you've sat for the last, I don't know, however many months we did three services. You doing all right? Can you handle it? Are, are, the, pews, are, are the seats okay? Are we gonna get some reviews on, on Yelp? Uh, the church was good, but the, the pastor preached and my, my butt was sore because those... I mean, like, I'm with you. I've gone to churches and judged them recently because their seats were really horrible. Now, I'm not judging them like I'm never going to come back, and if that was my church, I'd keep going. But I would also say, hey, we got this incredible chair company that, like, hooked us up with some pretty nice chairs at a great price, and if you'd like to figure it out, I can help you figure that out. But the truth is this. Uh, like, we live in a, a consumer culture that's minute by minute, get microwave it all. I saw a testimony this week of a missionary to China who was talking about meeting with some believers in China, and he got there, and there were, you know, I, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but maybe 20 people in the room, leaders that he was teaching and training. He had brought Bibles, and I think at that point he had 13. So he handed them out. They went over some training. When he handed it out and they got to a certain scripture portion, uh, he saw one lady give her Bible to, to another one. And he said, hey, why'd you do that? She said, she said well, I memorized that already. She's like, you memorized that? He, she said, yeah, when I was in jail, I memorized that, that section. I've got a lot memorized he's like how did you memorize in jail don't they like keep you from having bibles in jail she says yeah but people write it down on pieces of paper and bring it in with them 
And she was like, the guy was like, okay, well, like, don't they find a piece of paper and take it away? She goes, yeah, that's why you got to memorize it quick. <laughs> and they, you know, continued the, the, the meeting together. And at the end of the meeting, he said, you know, how can I pray for you? And they said, would you, would you pray that someday we could be like you in the United States? We could have the freedom to gather like you do? And he said, I will absolutely not pray that. He said, you live in a, you, you've traveled three days to get here by all different kinds of things. You've sat in a room all day on the floor. You, you share Bibles and you memorize scripture from handwritten notes because you're, you're followers of Jesus Christ. He, he said, in my country, I can't get people to show up if the air conditioning's not cold enough or if the services are too long or they, we don't have kids ministry like they want. He said, I absolutely will not pray that. Power comes through waiting. The, the, the disciples, the apostles, waited 10 days. Tradition says 10 days between the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of, Jesus, of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Like, I'm already ready to end the service. And I'm preaching. Right? Like, are we willing to wait on him? Like, really, really wait to receive power. Part of humility Part of obedience is just being willing to wait on him. Say, this isn't it yet. You know, I I prayed the prayer five times. He didn't come through for me like I wanted. Maybe there's some more waiting. Now, as much as power comes through obedience and waiting, power also comes through the sovereignty of God. Jesus says, you will receive you will receive. There's something about God's plans and purpose. He wants to pour his power out on us. And again, it's, it's not how we decide when it happens, right? It's not like the disciples are like, all right, day 10, it is the, the Feast of Pentecost, so God, this would be a really good time for you to pour your spirit out on us because then we'd have a nice name for it. We can actually start some denominations later and add Pentecostal to it. Just Wait. Just wait, but being wait, waiting on, on the sovereignty of God, knowing that God's plan and purpose is to open heaven and for you to see angels going up and down upon the Son of Man, for him to pour out his spirit upon us. That is his purpose. That is his goal. That is his desire to fill us with his spirit, to baptize us, to overflowing so that we can be his witnesses. Power comes through gift. It's his purpose to give himself, that's the gift. Sometimes we get it wrong as Pentecostals and Charismatics, right? I, just, I want a gift, right? Like I wanna, I wanna prophesy, I wanna speak in tongues, I wanna raise the dead, I wanna, you know, whatever it is that we wanna do. But what's the power for? What did Jesus say the power was for? We'll get to that in a minute, it was for mission. But what is, what is it? It's not like he's pouring out like Jedi tricks on us or skills. He's literally giving himself. The gift that's worth waiting for is not worth waiting for because we're powerful. It's worth waiting for because it's him. It's his presence. The gift is not ritual. Otherwise, he could have just said, go baptize some people, right? That happened after. But the gift is not ritual. The gift is literally himself and the gift is consuming when we really met with him, we're transformed. If we had a nice service and we had some good feels, like, we might be a little bit transformed. But when we've seen him, 
we've been filled to overflowing with his presence, we are changed. And, and the thing that the Apostle James says is so hard to control becomes the instrument that God uses to display his glory. People speak in tongues. There's, there's an overflow from the fountain of God that's deep within us, and the gift is literally himself. And the truth is this, the last thing, is power, power comes from mission. He pours out his spirit, he gives of himself, he fulfills the promise of an open heaven of power so that we can do what he's called us to do, to be witnesses, the most effective witnesses, the most powerful witnesses in our homes, in our jobs, in our communities, to, to around the world. His desire is to fill us with himself. And one of the reasons is so that we can accomplish mission. Again, go, go back to that thought. What would it look like for daily numbers being added to those who are being saved? Those who are being baptized, those who are being discipled, those whose lives are being transformed. It requires the power of God. You and I were not transformed because we heard a good message and we decided in our heads to follow Jesus. We're transformed by the power of God. Salvation is the result of the power of God over death, hell, and the grave. Salvation in the immediate, like, like that's eternal salvation, but like so God coming through in the immediate is, is a result of the power of God in our lives. The presence of God in our lives. And he's called us to wait on him. So the worship team will come. We're gonna just take a few minutes. Again, this starts with a admission that we really do need the power of God. And maybe we're not experiencing it as God intends. Like maybe we're like Nathaniel. We're like, hey, good, you saw me under the fig tree? Good enough. <laughs> right? I'm all in. My faith responds to God. Yes, I'm there. And yet Jesus is saying, that was good, but I got, I got more for you. You're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see heaven open. And then fulfilling the promise of the Holy Spirit poured out upon us. Can, are you, can we wait just a couple minutes on that? Let me encourage you, find, find a, a different position than just sitting. If you're able to, maybe it's standing and lifting your hands, or maybe it's getting on your knees or on your face. Maybe it's getting together with your husband or wife and holding hands with them. And just opportunity to make a decision. Go ahead and find, find that position right now. Whatever it is, to just tell the Lord, if you are open to his move in your life, you're, you're, you're responding to his invitation for power. It's like the disciples not leaving Jerusalem. You're like, yes, I'll, I'll just wait on you. Jesus, we readily admit that we're not seeing your power like we could. Or maybe even like we read in scripture.
so we come to you in humility, recognizing it might not look like we think it should or we expect. And in obedience, we just wait on you for what you do so well. What's your joy to do? Would you pour out on us today? Not for ourselves. Would you fill us not for ourselves? Would you overflow in us? Not just for us. but to see your mission accomplished. The mission that you gave to us. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you that in you, Jesus, that's possible. We just wait on you. wait on you to fill us. We wait on you to baptize us. We wait on you to meet us. You are the gift we seek. Spirit come I just want to encourage us in this moment to maintain the waiting posture. And I don't mean that like stand your knees here or you want to do that, that's fine. Jake will give you instructions. But like the original disciples were just told not to leave Jerusalem, right? Like they still ate and gathered together. And... But we can maintain that waiting posture, that expectant posture that God will fulfill his word so that when we do gather together, when we're with him in our quiet times, that there's this fresh sense that he's about to and can do anything he wants to. There's a fresh expectation that kind of accompanies us. It's a fresh framework, really, of what he's about to do. And I really do believe this is going to be a season for us individually and as a church and in the body of Christ to see him like we've never seen him before. To be disciples, I mean like really to have areas of our lives where we haven't followed him before. To be open to us, a new invitation to intimacy. And really, a a season where we will see the power of God like never before. So let's, let's maintain that expectant heart. That prayerful, faithful response. That you're the son of God, the king of Israel, the king of the world. You can do whatever you want. And walk in the invitation to see heaven opened and the presence of God change us and change those around us.